0: Welcome to Everyday People podcast with me, Nyung Bo. I'm your everyday person whose mission is to give everyday people a platform to share their incredible story, learnings and life tools to inspire you to dream and live your best life. I believe that you don't have to be famous, turn over a million plus a year, have lots of degrees or be in a high position to have something powerful to share and leave a positive impact in your community. I believe the only prerequisite is that you are being you and you are living the amazing life that is meant to be for you. That is enough to inspire me to go live my best life. Will you join me on this journey of sharing, learning and living alongside everyday people? We are up to episode nine. Today's guest is my childhood friend, Hanyu In. We lost contact in grade four when I moved schools, but we sat in front of each other 10 years later in a university elective class. She was studying her Bachelor of Arts and I was studying my Bachelor of Science and we managed to cross paths. Isn't the universe great? So Han only recently got back to Melbourne from living and working overseas for one year in regional Japan in a city called Mene in Yamaguchi Prefecture. The work she is doing now includes emergency teaching, volunteering her Mondays at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre and being an activist for refugees and immigrants. She also has more hobbies than anyone I've ever met, including skating, creating comics and it's always an adventure when Han is around. So my first question for you. Because it's very fresh, can you tell us about your teaching experience in Japan? First of all, why did you decide to make that move in the first place? So
1: I went to Japan between August 2018 and August 2019. I was a secondary school teacher in Melbourne for two years, but struggled to uphold that career. So I felt like I needed a change, but not a complete career change. I knew I still wanted to teach young people and especially English because that's my disciplinary and that's one of my biggest passions in life. So I thought, why not create a big adventure out of (laughs) my job and move overseas to do it? So I prepared to apply for the JET program, which is a very special program that really sets you up with um, a town, usually a regional town in Japan. They set you up with an apartment and they set you up with different schools and it's all very exciting. And, yeah, I did that for a year and I found it very fulfilling. Tell us
0: about what teaching was like in Japan.
1: In Japan, I was split between elementary school and junior high school between grades three to six and then year sevens to nine. And that was very challenging because um, they knew no English at all. I feel like the younger people leave their hometowns in the country to go into the city. As a result, there are more opportunities to, you know, use their English and um, have jobs where English is necessary. But even so, Japan is very interesting and very unique in that they don't necessarily need English to have a tourism industry so in Vietnam for example or other Asian countries you see a lot of local people speak quite well in English because they use that English in order to
0: attract tourism hmm. but in Japan They don't. People just kind of go around. So people in Japan have to learn Japanese then if they're a tourist.
1: Yeah. So the tourists
0: kind of make an effort to speak Japanese, you know. So what parts of the Japanese culture did you love? And what have you picked up in Japan that you've been trying to continue here? While
1: I was in Japan teaching, I didn't feel like I had developed a lot of new teaching skills and tours. But in retrospect, I feel like that's not the case at all. And that I actually learnt a lot in teaching young people who speak no English at all a language. Like, that's absolutely amazing. Whereas all my career and university studies has been geared towards native speakers, children who grew up speaking English, speak English every day. That's a very great skill that I brought back. And attempting to learn Japanese while I was there was very challenging and wonderful and exciting. Their literature as well, they have such great, rich literature and culture and history, and it's all very
0: interconnected and intertwined. So it would have been hard living in Japan without your friends and your family. How did you make sure that, you know, it was a great experience and that you didn't feel isolated?
1: Um, I think that was just inevitable. Like the whole situation was that I didn't speak the language. The people around me didn't speak my language. I was in a very, very rural country town where there were no modes of transport except driving.
0: Yeah. Not even buses.
1: Very rarely there were buses and it would go very far, you know. The stops in between were very, very long. So I'd have to drive everywhere and I would drive hours and hours to meet other people on the program and create friendships essentially with people who were also going through this same experience, feeling isolated and manoeuvring through a new country. And obviously keeping in touch with my friends back home, and that was very important. How about that art club that you joined as well, that you guys created? Yeah, my friend Joanna lived in a town called Hofu. She lived around 65 minutes away by car. And she was also, I guess, very lonely and felt disconnected. And she had created an art club at university and she felt like because art is so universal, like a universal Mm. language, she wanted to create it in order to know people in her local town as well. So mm, she did that.
0: Wow. And she
1: invited me and everyone else on the program if they wanted to and it just
0: kind of blew up from there. It was quite amazing. What advice would you give to people who considering living and working overseas? Definitely, definitely. Do your research. I think that's very, very obvious.
1: But like even talk to people who have moved overseas, like your friends. Think about what your goals are for moving overseas. If it's only for an adventure, then maybe that's something that would be good for like a six-month stint, you know, maybe not a year-long thing. Learn the language. Be invested in it. Don't take it half-heartedly because it's a full-hearted commitment to take yourself out of your comfort zone. And go into a country, in my case, where they didn't speak the language at all and they didn't, they had very different customs, clearly. And I guess the strange thing was that everyone thought I was Japanese because I'm Asian looking, you know? So (laughs) there's that kind of additional problem. If you can call it a problem. I found it problematic at times, you know. But, yeah, just don't get yourself too set up on, like, one specific thing. I feel like if people have a really, really narrow goal, like I have to live Mm. in the south of London during the summer in a townhouse.
0: That's what I like, whoopsies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I feel like if that's the case, it's you're going to have to work extra hard for it. You're going to have to do extra research, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: To keep an nip in mind.
1: If you want, yeah. I think yeah. that's the easiest way to do it. Otherwise, you're going to have
0: to work really hard to want something very specific. So the next thing I want to talk about is your passion in being an activist for refugees and immigrants. And, you know, that's why you go to protests and that's why you volunteer your Mondays to a Mm not-for-profit. Can you tell us where that passion came from and why do you do what you do? A man asked me that same question. And we also talked about
1: my background and how my parents are immigrants from Vietnam. They came here in 1985, after being at a refugee camp in Indonesia for 27 months. And so he kind of made the connection that I'm passionate about that because I'm connected to that through my family, through my parents. Mm. And I thought about it and I said, no, that's not the case because my parents are actually (laughs) anti-immigration, interestingly enough. They don't really Mm. support the idea of more people coming into Australia, which is like a fascinating phenomenon. So I feel like I've kind of developed it just within myself, like an empathy within me that I've developed as a child. It's just really hard for me to see people not have an opportunity to be in a safe environment where you can just live your life. And that's essentially what it is. That's as basic as it is. These people need help mm. in order to lead a safe and happy life. So why not help when you can? And so that's what I do. Like, I can teach. That's essentially only one of the skills that I have professionally. Yeah, I teach people seeking asylum English so that they can pursue um, work opportunities.
0: So what is it like being face-to-face with people who are vulnerable and are not being properly supported by the government? I think teaching is always about vulnerability. You know, when you teach with
1: children, they're vulnerable in a lot of ways as well. This is very different, obviously, because I'm not trained to work with adults who are vulnerable, especially people who bring a lot of trauma with them. Understandably, they've faced a lot of things and a lot of the times their trauma is not acknowledged by the government. It's actually actively denied that these people don't deserve to continue to stay in Australia. And it's very hard to juggle that wanting to care for them as a person and wanting to help them within the classroom. You know, there are boundaries that need to be kept and that's always something that I struggle with and that's always something that I continually reflect on, whether I might trigger a lot of these people, whether I might be saying something that's insensitive, whether I might not be teaching content that will actually help them in their day-to-day lives. So for me, I try my best to be as sympathetic as possible and to make sure that they feel happy and safe within the two hours that I get to meet them every week.
0: Even though you're unsure of how to help, you just do it and hope that they receive it well. Yeah. It's better than, you know, having a fear that you can't help them and not offering your help because then that's one less person there supporting them. What about the Protests that you go to because I've never been to one. Oh, really? Is, I should take you to one. Oh, that's very what exciting. What is it like, and oh, how successful are they usually?
1: They're very, very amazing. The feeling in a protest is a feeling that can't be replicated anywhere else, I think. It's a community feeling. It's a lot of people believing in the same thing together, striving for one shared vision, one shared goal. And a lot of these protests I go to vary in size, obviously. There might be, you know, 50 people. There might be a couple hundreds. The most recent one, which isn't related to people seeking asylum or immigrants or refugees, but for climate change, it was tens of thousands of people, and that's absolutely amazing. Mm. So the feeling is almost overwhelming, but also at the same time, you feel this incredible energy and passion from like-minded people And you feel the anger as well. It's motivated by dissatisfaction in regards to a topic. And a lot of the topics, obviously, are social topics about immigrants, about climate change, about Indigenous rights. So I feel like it really is important for you and everyone in a democratic society to know that you have that right to protest. You have that right to say to the government, You're doing a shit job. This is what the people want.
0: I feel like I haven't been to any protests because I feel like I maybe I don't have the same passion as other people because I don't know enough.
1: No, I feel like it's also a place where you can learn. Yes. Yes. Okay, I should go and learn more. All right. Let's choose a protest together (laughs) and we're fucking going. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely not for everyone. I think most people are welcome. Everyone You know, on the political spectrum, protests, like people from the far right, people in the middle, people from the far left, they all voice their, you know, concerns through protesting. That's just been a human thing. Like it's been happening since civilization has started, you know, like revolutions within the working class. It's just Mm. something that we've
0: always done. I need to be a part of it. So you brought in a book that you want to share. Yeah. So... During my year-long
1: stay teaching in Japan, there were very long moments of isolation and I learned to enjoy uh, my own company, I guess, by reading and painting and drawing and writing. So reading has always been a passion of mine and I read this um, series of poems by Allen Ginsberg. He was an American beat poet who wrote some very, very out there poetry.
0: What's a beat poet?
1: Beat poetry is a type of literature that was created in the 50s and 60s that wanted to really change the way people express themselves, essentially. So they express themselves in very, very radical ways and really tapped into their emotions and their ideas about society. The, The way in which they wrote wasn't well received, I guess, because it's not... Yeah, what was normal at the time. Sometimes it just sounds like gibberish and I also just love that. It's just a string of words together. Wow. Okay, let's have a listen. So Song was my favourite poem. It goes like this. The weight of the world is love. Under the burden of solitude, under the burden of dissatisfaction, the weight, the weight we carry is love. Who can deny In dreams it touches. The body, in thought, constructs a miracle. In imagination, anguishes till born inhuman. Look out of the heart burning with purity, for the burden of life is love. We can carry the weight warily, and so must rest in the arms of love at last. Must rest in the arms of love. No rest without love. No sleep without dreams of love. Be mad or chill, obsessed with angels or machines. The final wish is love. Cannot be bitter, cannot deny, cannot withhold if denied. The weight is too heavy.
0: How's that radical? I think that was beautiful. And that, yeah, but for
1: the times then, it's just too much, you know? Too much feelings. Perhaps the reflection is very, very intense in a lot of ways. There's not a really strong narrative. You know, there's not a clear story. But the 50s and 60s, They're two really incredible, massive decades that have many different subcultures within them. So beat poetry was a subculture that some people wanted to be a part of and some people decided not to be a part of. You're going to share with us one of your book reviews. Um, So I have a really, I guess, small review of My Brilliant Friend, which you read as well, haven't you, Nyong? 80% 80% of the way on Goodreads. <laughs> really? So what I wrote for My Brilliant Friend by um, Elena Ferrante and translated by Anne Goldstein um, because it was originally written in Italian, um, I wrote, My Brilliant Friend was near impossible to put down. The 1950s provincial Italian backdrop, the extreme characters leaf being off the page, the beautiful narrative, were a combined force that transports the readers into a micro-world. The obsessive and consuming friendship between Lila and Lenu is highlighted by Ferrante's lyrical narrative that explores whether love between friends can transcend the typical and obligatory love for family. The older the girls get, the more compelling their lives are. I cannot wait to get my hands on the second book, A Must Read. So I gave that five stars, which I rarely do. Wow. So um, there are four books all together in the series and I just completely ate them up. Like I remember reading them just from the crack of dawn to like the end of night like it was absolutely obsessive
0: I don't know why I'm just at
1: 80% (laughs) no you have every right to read whatever you want to read although I am a self-proclaimed
0: book snob I just it doesn't matter as long as you're reading so let's go to the five quick questions yeah my first question I hope you like this one what's your favorite mini adventure that's very interesting. What's a mini adventure and an adventure? It has to be mini because anyone can do it. it doesn't cost too much money, and it doesn't take too much time. Oh, going to the gallery, just you seeing art and just being there with someone
1: and reading about different time periods and different methods of art. Like I think that's such a great adventure. And because Melbourne is full of art galleries, like literally every corner there's. An independent art gallery or a government sponsored art gallery. Mm. You can just go anytime. So, yeah, that would be my mini adventure. Just make a day of going to art
0: galleries. Yeah. So, what is your favorite pizza topping?
1: Oh, huh. okay. So I've recently passed on to vegetarianism. So I used to really like the classic pepperoni pizza, of course. But now that I'm a vegetarian, I guess just take off the pepperoni, put some basil leaves and it's a margarita. But I would say, while that's a classic, my all-time favorite probably would be, and I tried making this with yu olives and prosciutto. <laughs> well, that's not vegetarian, is it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, do, we made many pizzas. <laughs>
1: Mushroom and olives.
0: Who would you say inspires you the most from your literature knowledge? So I think as a character, my favourite book is Jane Eyre and she
1: is this wonderful character who essentially introduced me to feminism. Even though she's a fictional character, her story was just so powerful and just so harrowing that I absolutely gravitated towards it and felt like, This lady, this fake lady just put so much energy in being there for herself, you know, and not relying on everything that society was telling her to rely on, not relying on money, not relying on education, not relying on status or men, not relying on a lot of things, but herself and her own confidence. Yeah, she was a plain girl and she didn't have good looks and she acknowledged that as well and she said, I can be whatever I want to be regardless of what I don't have. She's amazing, Jane Eyre.
0: Check her out. Okay, I will check her out. I like that. Yeah. It's very powerful. I'm sure there's people like that in real life too. Oh, of course. I feel like this whole podcast has been like themed around books. (laughs) My next question is, name a book that changed the way that you see the world.
1: One book that's changed my life. So there was this play that I studied written by Samuel Beckett and it's a surrealist play called Waiting for Godot. So the whole play is a two-character play, two main characters, and there were a few secondary characters, and they're waiting for this person named Godot. And spoilers, guys, cover your ears if you don't want to hear it, but he never comes. And so they're just sitting there and waiting and waiting and talking about life and just bickering to each other trying to decide what to do should they wait should they go what's going to happen if he comes and they're not there what if he never comes and it was just so banal and so absolutely different to everything that I've read I felt like it changed my life because anything can be extraordinary even the ordinary can be extraordinary depends on how you depict it how you show it how you present it which is what I love about literature what I love about art, that anything can be extraordinary. Yeah, so I feel like it changed my life a lot in seeing the world yeah. in that the world is always, every day there are there are probably more ordinary events in the world than extraordinary, right? Mm. But why can't those ordinary events be captured in art, be captured in literature? And it mm. is.
0: Oh, I know what you're saying now. Yeah. Wow, that's so true. It's like yeah. trying to see something in a different light. Yeah. And it's up to you, like, how you receive it. Mm, How you present it. Yeah, how you experience it. What's a ritual that you enjoy prioritising? Spending time with my friends. You know, I feel like for
1: a society or time period where we're so connected to each other, it's still very important to see people face-to-face and just enjoy sitting together and talking, sharing a cup of tea, sharing coffee, sitting in the park, and being connected not just, you know, through messages and through photos, but just being there in the moment together. You know, as a, someone who works and volunteers and who is trying to kind of date as well, I feel like it's also really important to pay attention to the people who, you know, say that they'll always be there for you and you might take that for granted, you should always be there for them as well and make time for that.
0: Wow, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you're one of my really good friends and you you somehow know how to be a good friend. And I wonder where that came from. Um, I think people
1: being good friends to me. like mm. It just shows me, wow, this is a person I want in my life for a very long time, if not forever. And why is that? It's because they're X, Y, Z. So I want to be X, Y, Z to someone else who deserves to be treated that way.
0: You've just listened to the Everyday People podcast with Nyongvo. You can find out more about Han via her Instagram, at han with a hat listen to more episodes of the everyday people podcast with inspiring everyday people on itunes or spotify